Britannica is thrilled to introduce Launchpack's GCSE, winner of the BET Award 2021 for Best Classroom Aid for Learning, Teaching and Assessment. We understand that your teaching needs to include so many different aspects now, including literacy and numeracy skills. Launchpacks encourages teachers to be innovative with their scheme of learning and assessment strategies, with ready-made and versatile resources to engage pupils. Let us prove this to you by giving you a free trial access. Plus, all GA teachers get 10% off. Otherwise, sit back and enjoy this next JogPod with John. Hello there and welcome to JogPod. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Katie Walter. Now, Katie, you've just been appointed Head of Humanities at Prendergast School, so a new role for you. Congratulations on your appointment and welcome to JogPod. Thank you so much and thank you for having me. Um, yes, I've been a big fan of JogPod for a long time, so it's a, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, I'm very excited about this new role. It's um, it's a wonderful school, Prendergast, and um, yeah, just a really great team that I'm going to be working with uh, there. So all very exciting for me. <laughs> I, I think that's fascinating. Uh, uh, you blog about teaching, you write about it, you tweet about it. I've seen you say you're still barking at your kitchen table until 1am and yet you're still bubbly with enthusiasm. So it would be, it'd be nice to, to, to find out why you wanted to be a teacher, first of all, but then what keeps you going? What, what drives you? Yeah, so I I always wanted to be a teacher. Um, my mum was a primary school teacher. My, my granddad was a secondary school teacher. So it was sort of, it does seem to be one of those where it runs in the family um, and so I I had always known that I sort of wanted to do that I loved working with young people even when I was pretty young I did my school work experience in a primary school uh, when I was in year 11 I think um, but I had sort of thought I did want to be in a primary school so I um, went on to the University of Northampton and I was studying English and geography, actually. I was doing a joint honours course because I had thought I wanted to be a primary school teacher. I kind of thought it would be a good idea to get a real core subject in there. And I loved English and I still do love English. I love reading. Um, and I was doing human geography as part of the joint honours. And just by chance, um, Northampton has this wonderful volunteering programme. Um, that they really encourage their undergraduates to get involved with. So by chance, I just happened to do a few days volunteering uh, while I was at university. I think it was in my, at the end of my first year, going into my second year. Um, and it was really doing this sustainability project with a local secondary school. So working with the geography teachers there. Uh, and I think they were year 10 and year 12 students. So bear in mind, I, I was 19 at this point and I was working with, the, what they must have been 14 15 year olds and 16 17 year olds um, and I think for lots of people who are at university and they're considering teaching as a career the idea of going to work with people who are so close to them in age can be quite intimidating uh, especially because everybody have the, has this perception or misconception I should say that all teenagers are horrible <laughs> why would they want to work with them um, so I think I had I just sort of thought oh, I, I would love to focus really on geography and I was particularly enjoying the geography side of, of my degree um, and just doing this day of, of experience it really apart from feeling 
alienated by by the experience I really just found myself kind of in my element um, and I was loving working with slightly older children having done lots of a work experience in primary schools um, I've, I've realized how different the dynamic was with older children and I, and I just loved it so I went to have a chat with the careers advisor at university and they basically said that you can you can carry on doing the degree you're doing and then go on to be a geography teacher or an English teacher if you want to um, but by that point, I, I was loving geography so much at university that the geography department at the University of Northampton, bit of a shout out here, are absolutely amazing. They they have a really, really wonderful team there. And I was very inspired by um, the uh, lecturers there. So I decided I was going to focus on geography. Um, but I knew then I had to catch up with a bit of physical knowledge because um, I very much focused on human geography up until that point. And I would still say I'm very much a human geographer, uh, but I did end up with actually a BSc in geography. Um, and so I, I did an extra year of university so that I could basically catch up with those physical geography modules um, and, and I came out with yes a, a geography degree bachelor of science so it wasn't what I set out to do at all um, but it meant that I was then in a strong position to apply for a PGC which I did at Cambridge um, and that was in 2013 uh, and I didn't look back really um, I had a wonderful experience living and working in Cambridge and always planned to move to London uh, but actually a friend on my PGCE course said, I think the school that I am doing my uh, work experience or what's it called placement in, uh, I think it would be right up your street. The head of geography is really into sport. She's, she, you know, she's a big skier. And those were all things that I love to do. So I ended up applying for a job there, got the job there. And I stayed in Cambridge for three more years and I had never planned to. Um, so that, that's kind of how I got into it. Um, and I think a combination of lots of things. I was very lucky to do my PGC at Cambridge. Um, it was a it was a great course. I actually found the the course very difficult. I found it hard. I found it really really kind of a lot less um, a lot well a lot more stressful. I would say than my NQT. <laughs> um, but I know a lot of people find the opposite is true. Sometimes they find their PGC is a lot easier. So I think that's down to individual experience. Uh, but also um, yeah, Netherhall School was the first school that I worked in in, in Cambridge and. Um, it was just the, the most wonderful place to work for the first three years. Um, like every school, it had its own challenges, uh, but I was I was really lucky to start my career there. Um, and my head of department was really supportive of me when I was there. So I guess I sort of had a, a, a really a wonderful introduction to the career. And I was I was surrounded by uh, all these really inspiring people who just loved teaching. I think our department at that point when I joined was five women, five female geography teachers, which is quite rare, I think. I don't think there's many departments which are only women. Um, and they they all loved it as much as I did. So um, that's kind of what started me off with my passion, uh, <laughs> I suppose. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that scarily narrow gap between you teaching them as a as a 20 what would you be 21 year old and then being 18 carries on through life I uh, and I wonder what their perception of you was because they have yeah. probably still seen you as being 54 years old <laughs> yeah oh, you, you come in and oh this is a teacher so they're really old I, I've kept in touch with my teacher um, and of course now the age gap seems nothing 
but I've also kept in touch with some of my students and a couple of head teachers, but some of them have retired. What a nightmare that is. So <laughs> wait till that catches up on you as well. But yes, <laughs> it isn't much of a gap, is it? No, it's really not. And I think you're right. As soon as somebody tells young people this is a person of authority, it doesn't really matter how old they are. There is there is that automatic assumed uh, respect to a point. I think then they kind of size you up and work you out. <laughs> they think, um, you know, how much are we going to respect you? Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that generally young people are a lot more savvy than we um we give them allowance for and i think they can they can do a lot of you know they can work out characters i think better than we think they can and and if you're somebody who loves your subject and you love geography and you just want to, to teach them the best that you possibly can then they're generally going to get on side in my experience that's what i found I was reading some of the work that you were doing about curriculum thinking which was interesting because thinking back to when i first started teaching I came into the school and in it was it was second year in those days, Y80 is now. We had a textbook called Under the Southern Cross, and you just you taught stuff. And then in the third year, Y9 as you taught more stuff, but it was European stuff. And I don't there wasn't really any any thought about developing a curriculum. You just did more stuff and it might have been a bit harder. And I was lucky, really, because I, I, I lived in Sheffield and the GEA headquarters are in Sheffield. And at the time there was a Fleur library. There was none of this Internet bark. So I could go in and grab all the stuff and read up about curriculum making and curriculum development. But I, I can't remember that we were taught it. But you've done work. You're a Fawcett Fellow at, the, at UCL. And I know you've worked with David Gardner and you've written a lot about sequencing learning and curriculum thinking and I was really interested in what you talked about with your your building blocks and your threads of curriculum design so rather than me spouting on about it I thought I'd ask you just to explain a little bit about where you got to with that thinking and where you're taking it at school. Yeah definitely I think firstly I don't think even, well, I don't remember, perhaps we were taught a bit about it, but even in 2013, when I did my PGC, I don't remember curriculum design being a huge focus even then. Um, I, I'm sure there were discussions about it, but uh, certainly it was very much more about focusing on, yeah, the content that you were teaching rather than the sequencing of it. And perhaps, perhaps this is just something that I have particularly found that I'm interested in because um, I think... I, I've, I've realized the longer I've taught how important it is to make sure you get your, your sequencing right. So uh, I came up with this, um, uh, well, I didn't come up with it at all. That's complete lies. It wasn't my idea at all. <laughs> okay, uh, uh, the, the concept of, of uh, building blocks, I think, um, I think it was Mark McCourt that came up with that. Um, and the way that I, the reason I like this metaphor is it really um, breaks down what, I get the impression that lots of people are quite fearful about sequencing because they think it's a massive job, but I think it really simplifies the, the idea of it, which is that when we're teaching students, we want them to be able to access knowledge and we want them to be able to build upon that knowledge, but it's really difficult for them to do that if they haven't got the, the foundations, if you like. And so 
excuse me for kind of drawing out this metaphor of building a wall or building a house, but I'm going to go with it. So if you think about the foundations of a house, you can't you can't start building the wall without the foundations. And so uh, the idea of that and, and, you know, I've heard them called various names. Some people call them threshold concepts or um, kind of key concepts that they need to have or, or ideas they need to have before they can unlock the next stage of their knowledge. But really, it's about saying, you know, how what do I need to start with for these students to be able to do the next part of our curriculum? And it's one of the reasons why so many secondary schools, you know, in year seven, they start with some kind of map and skills based topic. And I can completely understand the, the, the logic and the reasoning for that. It may not be perfect for every school, but lots of schools are, are realising that there may, might be a slight gap in their knowledge and maybe they weren't able to access that at primary school to the degree that they need to. So they're starting with that and that's their foundation. They may also introduce other key ideas such as sustainability, um, such as the the kind of the concepts of climate change. You know, it, it, it will vary. And I think it should vary from department to department because it shows that each school is thinking about it really carefully. Um, but so the idea of this, this building block is really so that once you've put one building block in place, you put another next to it. And only when you've got kind of the, the key foundations can you then access the slightly more advanced, perhaps the more analytical thinking. Um, I mean, I think I said this in my blog that haven't we all got partway through a lesson and realised oh, it'd actually be really helpful if they already knew about X right now, <laughs> you know, or, or something that we, we kind of maybe should jot down and say, let's, let's discuss this in a department meeting. Let's talk about the merits of teaching this before this and what that would mean. Um, of course, it's it's a challenge because as soon as, as soon as you move one piece, it's like a puzzle that we move one piece and then you've got to fix another part. Um, and yeah, I've done quite a lot of writing about examples of this uh, and where it's where it's I think important to just think really deeply about it. And I think the the discussions within departments are are crucial. David talks a lot about that. David Gardner, when we were putting together the work for Progress in Geography, the the, the textbook. And remembering to look back and remembering to look forward and to time things. And what's interesting is you'd said there's there isn't a perfect sequence. Quite often we get in teaching, somebody comes along and says, This is the way you've got to do it. Like the three-part lesson that we all have to do at that time. Um, and I know I harp on about this sometimes, it's not the only way. And you've talked about that and said that there isn't a perfect sequence. There is, there are, there are sequences. And as yeah. long as you're talking them through and you understand why that's the way it's going to go, that that's fine. There isn't just, a, you can't buy it off the shelf. Yeah, I think that idea of an off-the-shelf curriculum is, is, is dangerous because then there really isn't the thinking that's going on about that curriculum um, justification if you know understanding I think it's important to uh, frame that knowledge not that you need to justify every single section necessarily with students but it's, it's important to frame that knowledge um, clearly with you with your department so um, I mean one of the examples that I, I talk about quite a lot in the chapter that I've written for David Gardner recently um, is you know the example of teaching about disasters and whether we can you know can we really teach about hazard management and hazard risk without teaching about development beforehand um 
And then you can have those discussions about, you know, how important is development when it comes to resilience and, and um, hazard management. But without that prior knowledge, it's very difficult to unlock um, unlock that, that really analytical thinking. So as you said, it's it's not about perfection. It's just about making sure every single person in your or, or every single stakeholder in your department is aware of why that's happening when it is. Um, of course, th- these are this is in an ideal world. These are discussions which I, I realize are, are difficult to have, but I would I would urge every head of department to prioritize making these sorts of discussions the kind of the top of the agenda on the department meeting um, itinerary rather than than, uh, more admin based uh, activities which I know it's really it's easy to say that when you've got um, you know important uh, AOB as we might say from um, SLT coming from above Um, so I think really really prioritizing the geography and, and the sequencing of the geography is it's difficult to do but it's it's definitely something that i i make a priority here i think it's definitely a message for senior leadership teams as well to trust their trust their subject teams give them more time for those sorts of conversations because it is it is a deep conversation you've got, you've got to spend time thinking that through it's not something you can do you know we've got 25 minutes to talk about this thing that okay. that just doesn't happen no, the no. other thing i think is is important is to go back to primaries because yeah you were talking there i've seen a lot of y7s doing map work at its best it's map work at least tied to local geography but i've just been in it primary school doing local geography with digimaps with y2s and y3s and and they could do it they can see when you zoom in oh my house isn't there when you change from the 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 map today and you go back to the 1950s map where's my house gone Mm. they can get all of that so the sequencing needs to go back particularly now that primary school teachers are, are thinking through what geography really means yeah I agree. I think there was one thing I put on a wish list for uh, geographers. It would be for, you know, especially secondary school geography teachers to have more time to liaise with their feeder primary schools um, and their surrounding primary schools, because as you say, there's been a huge amount of pressure. I would, I would argue that's been put on primary schools to improve the geography provision, you know, and provision of other subjects um, in recent years. And the reality is that primary schools can't do it all. I think there is almost a responsibility to use the subject specialists within secondary schools to support primary schools. But of course, the challenge with that is time. It's time and it's it's time that most schools simply don't have. And again, it's about arguing how important it is to make that a priority um and i've i've worked in some schools where they do that really well and they they really do liaise well with the the primary schools um it's difficult i, I don't i don't think that there's a, a kind of a quick fix to that that problem but i would i would argue that what you see when that partnership is really effective is you like you say you you see actually just how much they're capable of at primary school and what they are what they are already um, accessing before they reach us, and I think perhaps we're we're all dangerous. Uh, we're all in d- danger of, um, I, I suppose, underestimating what our year seven students are capable of. Um, you know, thinking about the, that that publication, the wasted years. Um, do we do we just not utilize what they are already 
experiencing at primary school, we you know well enough. Um, not just in geography, I think that's possibly true across the board. Um, but you're absolutely right. It's it's very much, you know, it's within our interests to invest time in those primary school programs. I think and and work out. Okay, well, they already know that. Do we need to really spend three lessons recapping the continents, <laughs> or can we move on from that? It's a challenge, uh, but it's definitely one that's worth again discussing in your departments. Is there is there a way that we can make time for this? It is important because it's so varied at primary schools. You can get students who who are really good geographers, and some where they've and they've done it, it's it's nice education. They've done some social studies about countries, or they've dressed up and they've they've cooked food and they've they've had a, a cultural day. But there's no geography there. No. Um, and then others will come as, as really well-rounded geographers already. And so you're right. It's it, and you just said it, it's it's in the interest of the of the secondary school to take that message to all of the primaries. So what you don't get is a is a mishmash of, of some students who are really good and really on the ball and some mm-hmm. others where you give them a world map and they don't know what they're looking at because yeah. they've um, there's been no geography. Mm-hmm. And I, I've seen some submissions where the, the work's great, but I can hear Margaret Roberts behind me saying, where's the geography? Where's the geography? So then that, I was looking at one of the things that you've done reverse case studies oh yeah <laughs> and, and quality geography and I was going through it and I was thinking where's the geography and then that's that's fascinating because you make it a reveal at the end I would imagine they know it's coming because they know you're a geographer but that sounds like a, a really intriguing way to do it I hadn't thought about doing it that way stumbled upon this resource that Educast had created by mistake um, and I, I think they were setting it up as kind of a a reveal case study I can't quite remember whether it was something that they had sort of framed in that way or whether I saw this as a potential idea and ran with it I I, I, it was uh, probably two years ago now I was getting to the end of teaching my year 11s and um, they were really great bunch but there was a huge range of abilities in that group and um, I had students who were really really switched on and they were really great geographers and then others who were you know they were really striving to get that that grade two or grade grade three um and one of the things i was noticing is that we would it was kind of becoming death by case studies and so they were sort of just learning these facts and they weren't really thinking very deeply about them and they weren't applying the ideas across uh different examples and and they weren't able to sort of see the synoptic links in any way so this um, case study that I came across was about Cameroon and um, about management techniques to protect the rainforest in Cameroon. And again, I kind of thought, well, I could just tell them what the management techniques are and I could tell them what they ended up deciding to do in Cameroon, or I could present them with this sort of, um, I suppose you'd call it a slight DME, decision-making exercise, where they they are given the techniques, they're given the pros and cons of the techniques, and then they have to decide which ones they're going to uh, get them to use to protect this rainforest. But the catch was I didn't tell them that it was Cameroon. Um, So I said, there's a country, I'm going to give you some information about this country. I'm not going to tell you where it is. I want you to kind of 
you know, use your processes of deduction to, to work it out. And I want you to tell me which techniques you would use bearing in mind all of this information. Uh, and it wasn't until the very end of the lesson when I got them to guess. I said, OK, so now when you know what you know, first of all, tell me what techniques you're going to use and where do you think this is? And one boy actually did guess Cameroon, which was pretty impressive. Um, so the reason I thought that worked, I'm not saying I'd teach every case study in that way, but the discussions that I was hearing as I was going around the room, I think were way more engaged than what I would have otherwise seen if I just said, oh, here's a country, what do you think they should do, move on? Um, they were really thinking very critically about it. Uh, and so I, I think they, they really were yeah engaging with the merits of each program in a hypothetical sense and it was only after I told them it was Cameroon in the following lesson we then discussed okay well how close was your decision to what they actually did and why do you think that was the same or why do you think that was different and why do you think there were these successes or, or otherwise uh, and their engagement was a lot better now, maybe it was just that it was a different way of approaching case studies, but I do think there was something about, you know, keeping my cards a bit close to my chest, not revealing it all at once, kind of seeing that as a, as a learning journey across three or four lessons, rather than just an isolated lesson on a case study. I just think they were more engaged. Uh, I think that element of intrigue really made it powerful for them. And the, there were some geographical discussions, even though they didn't know where they were talking about, they, at, at the point where I was introducing these techniques to them, they didn't know it was Cameroon. So it was hypothetical, but they were, you know, the, the language that they were using was was fantastic. Um, and so I think that the, the geographical benefits at the end of it, and that was the important point is, as I said, it was a four lesson sequence that we taught this through, not just one. So at the end of it, I think the learning was better. If you just looked at that one lesson where I'd said, OK, I'm going to teach you loads of stuff now, but you don't know where it is and you don't know what it is, blah, 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 then may maybe that in itself might have been, um, yeah, there might have been a Margaret Roberts question mark above that. <laughs> um, but that's another, uh, I suppose, pitfall that sometimes people forget that curriculum sequencing and construction it, it, it happens at a range of scales. It's not just the long-term scale. It's not just the lesson-by-lesson lesson scale. It's, you know, what's happening? What's the arc of this overall learning? Um, and so having the confidence sometimes to say, it's going to take three or four lessons before they've really, we've got to the nitty-gritty of that, that key geography and that key um, evaluation here that I really want them to, to get out of it and that's okay and having the confidence as a geography teacher to know that it might take a couple of lessons to get there I think that's fine what you don't want is to get to the end of a scheme of work and realize you've not taught them any geography that would be a problem it does take longer though doesn't it that's that's yeah. an issue I've had with some teachers I, I was working with them with a number uh, on the critical thinking for achievement course and it, it wasn't my stuff, so I can say this. It was I thought it was brilliant stuff. I, it was fantastic, mm -hmm. some of the materials. But I did have some teachers saying to me, one in particular, I, I've just come back from, oh, well, I've just come back from maternity leave, she said, and um, I don't think I'm going to be able to use this stuff because we have our lessons delivered on PowerPoint across the multi-academy trust. So we haven't got space to fit this sort of thinking in, which... I thought it was a bit disappointing, really. But you you do have to make space 
for that approach, it takes you longer than teaching a case study. So the other thing you've got to be careful of is you don't come to the end of your teaching time and realise you've got a quarter still you haven't taught because you've spent too long on getting to think more critically. So you've got that balance as well. Never mind the one about trying to sort the, um, the, the correct sequence. You've got to make time for those sorts of things. Yeah, it's true. But I think something that is important to remember is that specifications are not curriculum. So we can we can construct our curriculum, if it, especially at GCSE and A-level. You know, at Key Stage 3, there's a lot more freedom. But when, when we know we have to teach them or everything, all of the points on the specification. What I have done many, many times in the past, and what I see lots of schools doing, is they just teach it chronologically in the order that the specification says that the knowledge should be taught, and they get as a bullet point list. Uh, that's not how we have to do it. You know, that's not the way that the curriculum needs to be constructed for GCSE and A level. And there's lots of really exciting work that lots of people are doing about how they just started from scratch they thought about the order that things really should be taught in and then made sure that they you know they went back and they made sure that they were going to be meeting all of the you know knowledge specification criteria that they needed to be at the end of it um and seeing the specification as a starting point not necessarily the framework um i think is really helpful you know yes we need to cover the content but that's not all you need to do uh and if timing's an issue think about how you can replan some some parts you know can you kill two birds with one stone in this lesson can you teach about both tourism and rainforest management you know can you do that at the same time Uh, and having the bravery to do that the the other problem with doing it that way is it's it's hard work it's (laughs) it's a it's a big job uh to to not just use it as a yeah, as I said, a kind of chronological list to, to, to work through. Um, but I think it's so worth it. I think it's so worth making that a, a really engaging course for students that they are, they're going to, they're going to get a lot more out of it than just, you know, if they just see it as a tick list, then that can also be a little bit draining, I think, for them. Um, so yeah, having, having the, the time and the bravery to go, okay, we're gonna we're gonna shake this up a bit. We're gonna make sure that this is a, a really really memorable course for them. Um, and you know, I think back to that Cameroon lesson, and I think they really talked about that for a while. They remembered that really really for a lot longer than they remembered some other lessons. So that in itself should tell us something. You know, they they're probably going to sit in an exam and remember that, and they're probably going to be able to talk to, talk about that in a couple of years' time. And that's so much more important than just stuffing them full of knowledge. <laughs> These were sorts of conversations that I suppose I was beginning to have once I got more confident into teaching and was looking at the guidance that particularly the GA provided on developing a curriculum because they knew that the one we had wasn't working. It was just more stuff and more stuff and more stuff. Um, but it was before the national curriculum. So there was room to play, which was really quite interesting, and room to discuss what goes in, what is important. What should fit here? Not having somebody somewhere else telling you which are the important rivers that you must study, but for my students here, what's the most relevant things that I want them to get out of this? And there, there was a lot of writing. I've had teachers say to me sometimes on courses, well, well, how did you know what to teach if there was no national curriculum? But actually, there were plenty of guides around talking in the way you've talked about what you want to put where which do you think is the most important for your students Uh, 
it, it is an interesting conversation to have, even if you're using a spec, as you've just said, to unpick the spec and say, well, how's the best way to get through this? And when can mm. we do two things or three things all at once and, and, and uh, I've covered all of those? And then, and then you're starting to think not just about the content, but about the concepts and where they appear. And you've also written quite a lot about, about skills. What was interesting was you said we shouldn't be like a data club about skills. And I was thinking, blimey, you're right. I, I did some work for OCR when the first um, when the new GCSEs came out. And we were looking at the skills list for GCSE, choropleth maps, desire line maps, sphere of influence maps, ice line. And if you started at GCSE, you'd have to do one a week. And then you wouldn't be able to unpick why one was better than another. You'd just be teaching the techniques. So you you talked about making sure that we've got that planned right from Y7. Yeah. And it's going to make them bestographers if we do that. You know, if they can talk about what proportional symbols are at the end of year eight, or they they understand what sphere of influence is by the end of key stage three, then it's it's not as though we're going to be introducing these as, as new ideas for the first time and that they those those different types of, of graphs and skills they come up throughout the GCSE they come up you know at the beginning of year 10 we, we see them in the textbooks we see them in the sources resources we're going to use. so if they don't know what those are by the time they start the GCSE they're going to be struggling to access that so trying to um kind of interweave those throughout key stage three it's not just something that we're doing so that we make our lives easier at GCSE it's going to make them better geographers you know it's going to help them to access knowledge more easily so I think it is definitely worth sitting and mapping out where do these skills come up in your key stage three uh, and how can we ensure you know because I did this with my department probably three years ago now or two years ago and we we noticed that there was a, a, a lack of IT skills we really weren't giving them the opportunity for one reason or another you know whether that was due to IT resources in the school or whether it was due to our own gaps in our knowledge as a department um, whether it was lack of you know equipment at home for students whatever it was we realized that we needed to prioritize um, that and you know that that ranged from all sorts of things from giving the students a chance to learn how to make a presentation to giving them more exposure to things like ArcGIS so it was really it really ranged but what we were able to identify as a result of mapping it out was okay here's the gap here's what they're getting to GCSE and they're not able to do and perhaps this is why when they get to A level they struggle with their NEA because we've never taught them this we've never taught them how you you know, format a document, <laughs> how you map using anything that's not Google Maps, um, how you are able to search for geographical ideas and knowledge, not just typing into Google. <laughs> so I think that, again, it's, it's yes, it's making our lives easier down the line as teachers, but it's it's by far going to make the best, best geographers. Uh, and it's, it's about making their journey easier 
really and and not expecting to kind of catch them out at every stage and and you know hoping that oh you'll have covered this in maths won't you no uh okay because nine times out of ten no they haven't got to that bit in maths yet and and so we do need to talk to them about it here um and actually maybe that's another point to make is that discussions with the maths department are really important I think you know what have you done at key stage three are they going to have looked at scatter graphs by this point all that sort of thing really important to to sit down with your your key stage three coordinator for maths um, and and sort of map that out similarly in science um, it was really interesting I did that at my last school and we looked at just how much overlap there was between key stage three science and geography. Uh, you know, everything from kind of tectonics to um, ecosystems. There was there was so much overlap. So I think that's important to do as well is, is work out how are we going to teach this in a way which is supported by what they're doing, but they're not just learning the same thing and they're not seeing the same diagram when they go into their science as they go, as they go into their geography. How can we show them that, this isn't science, this is geography. You know, it, the, the, there's an overlap for sure, but let's talk about this in the ge- through a geographical lens. Um, so again, I know I'm just, I'm li- I feel like I'm listing things here where heads of department might say, okay, that's all very well, but where's the time for that? Um, but maybe that's where some delegation is important. Um, I, I did that when I was in my previous school and I wasn't the head of department. Um, I was the key stage three coordinator. Um, and so that role was kind of given to me and I fed back in a, in a department meeting. So yeah, u- utilize your team. I think that's, that's, you know, definitely something that can keep workload <laughs> down. <laughs> I keep collecting the bonkers uh, displays of data that you get on Twitter sometimes where somebody's picked this up because it's particularly not geographical. Or David Redfern does this quite a lot. He'll he'll show a graph where the the axes have been been altered so that they can make the points that they want to make when actually the data change is really narrow. But, But... the way that they presented the data is to make it look as though there's a huge change between one and the other. And it, it keep, it, it's, it's, in, it's making our students better informed. So they're not only yeah. better geographers and better scientists, but they're just better informed in life when they're yeah. being given those sorts of bonkers manipulated data to yeah. make a point that the data's not really making. I think... I do get angry sometimes with the way that uh, the press will manipulate those sorts of things and hope that people won't notice that it's wrong. But a good geographer will be going, well, just a minute, those two axes don't make sense. Yeah, it's about being, giving them the tools to spot fake news, isn't it? You know, it's, it's, it's empowering them. It's making them uh, feel confident enough to say, well, hang on a second, there's a problem here. Uh, and that is like you say it's it's a it's a geographical skill but it's also just a great life skill for them to have um so again two birds one stone well i think so and i think critical thinking is really important i i I batted on about this in a couple of other podcasts but when we do field work it's not saying to them look here this is a glacial landscape or look here this is whatever it is you're looking at it's it's more what do you see yeah. What sorts of explanations can you give to it? Because we've looked, if you if you go into explanations in the past of landscapes, geographers have come up with some really bizarre ideas and then new knowledge is created and we have to change. And that idea of, of knowledge being created 
and students understanding that, I think it's really important. We've done it with plate tectonics, haven't we? Because now we're, we're saying it's, it's not convection currents in the mantle. Ooh, well, every, yeah. textbook, every textbook says that, well, up until recently. And, and my A-level students were, were desperate at this sometimes. Oh, I've got it wrong. No, you haven't. No. But it's, that's what it says in the textbook when they've done their fieldwork. Uh, did you collect the fieldwork the right way? Yes. Did you sample properly? Yes. Well, let's sort out what your data is showing then, because it's not wrong. It's just geography is messy. The world is messy. Let's let's think critically about it. The other thing that I did was I've been trying out your top five websites. Oh, how did, how did you find that? <laughs> oh, well, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't used a couple of them. I thought Matchart was brilliant. So your top five, I thought, hey, this is something to play about with. It's good fun, this. So just talk us through those five. So they're the ones that I... I would say I use on a most regular basis beyond your obvious kind of, you know, use of GIS and Google Earth and all of the ones that, you know, geographers will already know about. Um, it's it's the ones which I just find I'll be sat in a lesson and a student will say something and and it, it takes you slightly off piece. So it's not quite on the lesson plan, but you think, hang on, there's, a, there's an opportunity for some really good discussion here. So uh, map chart is, is probably my favourite one because you can add very visually um the countries that you want to be shown in in a different color or, or kind of a block uh color in, in live time so you know if it, one of the ways that i have used it before is when i've been teaching one of the ways you can use it is when you're teaching about migration and you can say okay you know who who here was born in a, in a different country or whose parents were born in a different country and you can say okay where are they from uh and you know they might say bangladesh or whatever and then you add bangladesh to the map and they see it come up and they and it's it's kind of a lovely moment of engagement for the class because they feel included because they can see, oh, you know, that's that's where my mom's from. My country's been highlighted or whatever. Um, and it doesn't just have to be migration. It can be, you know, get out the things in your pencil case. Right. Tell me, where's your ruler from? China. OK, let's click on China. Now, now China's shown in red. Where's that from? Indonesia. OK, now Indonesia's also shown in red. So you end up with this, this map. Um, which is it has got loads and loads of uses that you can you can then save it and you can use it afterwards and you can do more with it after uh, after the lesson or next lesson or homework or whatever. Um, but the it, I think it's quite a powerful thing the students seeing that those different locations being added, especially if you want to make a point about um, distance or scale or globalization or something like that. Um, and, you know, you want to show how far reaching these different uh, countries are. It can be really useful for, 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 that, um, for that reason. So I love it. I use it all the time. Um, I, I, have, I don't think I've ever yet had a lesson where I've used it and, and students are kind of not bothered. They love it. They're so engaged and they're so interested it's also a chance to show off as a geography teacher and, and show off that you know where all the countries are roughly um, yeah I know I was thinking that one when you were set, when I was looking at it I was thinking okay then right so somebody comes up and says well oh my pencil case was made in oh Tajikistan Miss Walter <laughs> uh, yeah get that one you, I think you, the thing that it does make you realise is, as geography teachers, we do know more than we think we do. You know, I there there have been times where 
yeah, they kind of they, they do give you a, a curveball. But you, you, the nice thing about it is you can hover over the rough area and it will say, OK, it's a it, you can make it look like you knew exactly where it was. <laughs> I didn't realise that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I think we are, we, we don't give ourselves enough credit for how much we do know. And especially the longer you've been teaching, you do generally learn the, the areas which are going to come up time, time, time again. Um, so yeah, so map chart, I would say is probably my, my favourite one, just because it's got so many uses. And there's probably more uses that I've not even explored yet. Um, so giving students a chance to explore it too, because th- their IT knowledge is much better than ours. So <laughs> giving them an opportunity to explore what a programme can do is great. Um, what else do I do I use? Ventisky, uh, absolutely amazing. Um, the kind of live weather data platform, which... I, I don't think I could teach global atmospheric circulation without it because you sort of say to them, okay, and here are here's sort of demonstration of the trade winds and they will always be going in this direction. And let me prove to you, to you that this is true. Let's look at it. Here's the live data now, as you can see, it's going in this direction. And that's a really, really satisfying thing. Um, and they go, oh, wow. And of course it's a very beautiful visualization of the data. It's really kind of nice to look at. And I've, I've had loads of students say, Miss, I could stare at that all day. <laughs> I know, it's, it's absolutely amazing. So I wish I'd had that when I first started. I, this is what I used to do with my A-level students. I'd, I'd go onto the Met Office, and, and this was in the days when you had to have a fax. They'd fax me the, um, the synoptic chart, and we'd look and see where the, uh, where the front was on the synoptic chart. And I know you're not supposed to do this, but we, we, did. we put 10 pence on when's that going to cause rain to come over <laughs> so so they'd all they'd all put their little stash in. I didn't really say that and then I get students calling me saying because this will be about six o'clock I think I've won oh. <laughs> that's when, when the front has come on. but that's all we had we had blooming synoptic charts and, we, and they, they knew the sequence but only because We've done so many of, of just one synoptic chart after another. These visualizations are, are superb. I'm sounding like an old fossil now. <laughs> but yes, it, it is really dramatic. And I hadn't seen I hadn't seen that one either. So both of those are new to me. Yeah, um, they're they're just they're the sorts of, of things that I think because students are so they, they grow up with technology, but they I think they don't realize just how much technology is at their fingertips and how powerful it is they don't know what to search for you know they would never know about website like Venture sky or something so showing them yeah you can go home and you can look at this tonight and you can you can explore it in your own time you can spend hours on this if you want to um and it's still going to be live then and it's going to show you something different um <laughs> is it's it's great for them um you can also go back in time so you can say okay there was a hurricane on this date let's go back and have a look at what the what the pressure was doing then and, and those sorts of things so um yeah it's it's a it's a great tool i'm trying to remember what else was on there um if it were my home. Oh, just really, really powerful um, stuff. You know, the the kind of, the tangibility of those development indicators, I think is really helpful, you know, where it says things like you'd be 10 times more likely to die before the age of 50 or something. And that really is quite a, yeah, it, 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 it makes those statistics quite real for them. Um, and also great for case studies and case study, study comparison. I think you can take, any two countries and compare any two uh, 
indicators between them. So that's really helpful. You know, if you're thinking about doing case study comparison, that's that's an interesting way to think about it. Um, like I quite like the sort of the slight tone of empathy on if it were my home, you know, of like, you know, imagine if this were you living there rather than the kind of othering that I think sometimes the, there's been a danger of certain case study uh, teaching. And I'm sure I've been guilty of this in the past myself of, um, you know, kind of making making other places seem hopeless and, you know, isn't it so much better in X rather than Y? Uh, and actually bringing the human side back into that and saying, you know, what's, what's the reality of life for people in this place? Let's look at how diverse it is. Let's, let's understand um, the challenges, but also the opportunities, which is really what great geography I think is about. Um, I don't think any geography teacher sets out to reinforce those stereotypes, um, but it's, it's more just about, again, it's, this is a big challenge. It's about how do we teach these complex places when we are so time restricted and, and how can we simplify these ideas? Um, you know, because the, the, I think it's the great Chimamanda and Gozi Adichie quote where she says, you know, the thing about stereotypes is that they're, they're not untrue. They're just incomplete. So how can we relay that to, to students and say, there is an element of truth in this, but there's a, there's a broader story to be told here when we have such curriculum constraints, you know, time constraints. So um, I think, yeah, websites like that are really helpful for us to do that because you get a slight glimpse into that, that alternative side of, of these locations, which we don't normally perhaps discuss or talk about. So um, yeah. I love I love if it were my home. Sometimes I just go on for fun at the start of a lesson, even if it's not relevant. Just give give them a, a chance to have a look around. Um, so well, it's yeah, it's all relevant. It's all relevant because it's all geography, and it, they'll, well, they'll pull that thread somewhere else. I think they'll they'll just find it later on. Oh, remember yeah. when we? It's it said on your blog. I think you said something like, "I hope these will be useful to you," um, and do let me know if there's anything else or how you've used them. So it would be, it'd be nice for people to come back with more if they've got them, and yeah. we can start to build them up on the junior website. And also, if anyone's got any ideas how they use them. I did want to ask you about something that you've not been blogging about, but I know it's, it's sort of engaging you at the moment quite a lot, and that's the Queen's Green Canopy. I've seen you tweeting about it, yeah. and I know you're introducing it to your school, but you haven't blogged about it yet, but it does sound interesting. So what's going on there? Yeah, so I the, earlier this year, I became a, a London National Park City Ranger. They're trying to make London the first national park city in the world. And one of the things that I wanted to become involved with was about the kind of the rewilding and the greening side of, of, of London um, or of the, the kind of initiative, I should say. And, and thinking about how we can, you know, plant more trees, how we can increase um, tree coverage for a range of reasons. You know, if we just think about um, the impacts of climate change and how tree coverage can help to kind of cool the streets um, from, you know, things like improving biodiversity um, and providing habitats to bees. Um, you know, when you're planting these lovely wildflower meadows, uh, things like, you know, reducing flood risk. There's so many benefits to that. Um, and I just thought that there was an opportunity to bring the geographical side of that into a kind of wider school sphere. So one of the things that I became aware of was this uh, initiative called the Queen's Green Canopy, which is, um, I think, to celebrate the uh, Queen's Platinum Jubilee next year, June 2022. 
and they are encouraging everyone living in the United Kingdom to plant a tree for the Jubilee. So the idea is going to be not only encouraging everybody to obviously plant a tree, as they say, but to understand about sustainable planting of trees, because sometimes planting trees, people, people think that, you know, you plant a tree, that's great, but actually sometimes it can be quite un unhelpful. You've got to plan it very carefully. You've got to do it sustainably. You've got to think carefully about the type of tree that you're planting. Um, so there's going to be a lot of uh, information that's going to be shared about that. And there's a great school's program and some great schools resources so I've kind of created something which makes it even more school friendly um, just a little powerpoint which either geography teachers can use or just uh, you know I've made them so that they don't need to be taught by specialists so just anybody in a school in a pastoral program could use and discuss uh, there is also um, I can't remember the name of the company who is setting out to do this but there is a fund which will enable every school to buy a tree if they want to. So each school can plant their own tree. Um, and I just think it's a really lovely, wonderful program. Um, you know, this idea of, of every every school having their own tree planted for the Jubilee, but, but even better than that, empowering the families and, and the communities in and around the school to know that they can also plant their own tree, um, even if they don't have a garden. You know, it's, it's also about, it, making people aware of what they are legally allowed to do and where they are legally allowed to plant things on public land because you are allowed to do some planting uh, in, in certain public spaces. You just got to make sure you know, know where and you have the permission from the right people. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting program. I love the sustainable aspect of it. I love how, it, how it's been quite carefully thought through. Um, and I'm really looking forward to what's going to happen over the next couple of couple of uh, months because I believe from October onwards there is a, a live map on the Queen's Green Canopy website where you can um, I guess it's kind of like geo geotag almost you can tag where your tree has been planted and add it to this map so they can see how many trees have been planted by by next June so I'm really looking forward to seeing how that changes over the next couple of months. That sounds fascinating. We'll have to put the link in for that too um, when this goes out and we'll, we'll leave that with, with teachers to, to spread the word. I, I did some work with primary, that same primary school, with the Y6s. We were looking at how biodiverse is, is the, are the school grounds and they really got interested in that and we were talking about putting it in bug hotels in and, and they, it really made them think about the grounds in a different way. They were very lucky because that school's got a wood, it's got a green area. I have worked in some schools where they've just got a concrete playground. But but they can do that same sort of thing in a park. And I hadn't realised that you could start, if you check your facts properly, you can start planting trees in public spaces, which is, is fascinating. And, and probably a very positive place for us to, to finish, unless there's anything that I haven't asked you that you'd like to to add in because it's it's been a fascinating chat and I could go on forever but then I'm noted for talking now I'm going to go for donkey side <laughs> I ought to be quiet no I think uh we've covered a lot of things haven't we um I I suppose that this has been a year unlike any other um and I I, I guess a lot of what we've discussed today has been not in a in a 
COVID world, you know, it's been quite hypothetical <laughs> thinking about how we can... I've been trying to ignore COVID. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's the, a, a good approach. And, and I would really hope that this September, what schools are going to see is... A, is a, I feel nervous saying it, but, you know, touch with a slight return to normal. Um, and if anybody is, you know, doing any of these initiatives or they're, they're, they've got involved with anything that I've um, put on my blog, I'd love to chat to them more about it and, and hear more about how you're kind of um you know either engaging with primary schools or yeah if you're getting involved with the queen's green canopy I'd, I'd really love to speak to you and hear more well i hope this brings more people to your blog because i i i found it really fascinating it was it was a lovely read it was it was just very uplifting and very positive thank you for talking to us today that's been that's been a, a great hour thanks a lot thanks so much for having me john i've had a lovely time <laughs>